Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode covers Season 3, Part 12, Archive. Uh, just sharing part of my response at the time that this aired, immediately afterwards, what I wrote back then. And then also we are going to play a clip. Uh, I'll give you a warning beforehand in case you haven't seen the next episode, but the opening minute clip of Part 13 to set the mood for next week's episode, starting tomorrow. From my previous work on this episode, uh, in 2017, the night that this aired, in my response on my site, I wrote, Okay, so, Audrey, what the fuck was that scene? Audrey is a character we've been waiting to see, all the while wondering what her larger story has become. Here we're presented with a scene whose context remains stubbornly impenetrable, the character herself ultimately prying for information that she can't receive. It's maddening, hilarious, and more than a little brilliant. Here's what we do know. Audrey is married to Charlie, a little man behind a big desk who amusingly resembles one-time Twin Peaks writer-producer Harley Payton. She is leaving him for someone named Billy. Billy's missing, and Audrey wants Charlie's help to find him. Perhaps with the help of Tina, who seems to be married to Chuck. Before disappearing, Billy visited... Okay, I'm gonna stop there, because, uh, well, at least partly, I can't remember it all. But also partly because I'm not sure any of this matters. In fact, I think that's the point. Besides, if it does matter, Twin Peaks has already indicated it will repeat all of the information until we're sure we understand it. Here's what we don't know. Anything about Audrey's relationship to Richard or the rest of her family. What she's been doing for the past 25 years, or how she, her husband, and her lover ended up in any of the situation discussed, not to mention where the situation has led or could lead any of them. The scene is extraordinarily reminiscent of other contextless Lynch scenes, including the audition extract to Mulholland Drive and Lynch's very first film with dialogue, The Amputee, in which a legless woman played by Catherine Coulson composes a letter about people and incidents whose backgrounds we're not privy to. This technique is also reminiscent of Jacques Rivette, a filmmaker I've often mentioned in connection with Lynch, and the team of Jean-Marie Strobe and Danielle Huillet. In this particular scenario, various interpretations raced through my mind. Is Billy a beloved runaway pet whom Audrey cherished more than her husband? That possibility vanishes, one hopes, when she talks about fucking Billy. Is this actually a play being performed by Audrey and the other man in front of a local audience? The initial camera angle suggests as much, but constant references to Audrey's real name convince me otherwise. Do Billy, Chuck, and the missing car have anything to do with the farmer killed by Richard? Jury's still kind of out on that, but the various vehicular transactions don't seem to overlap with the hit-and-run situation. And all that's clear, at this point, is how perfectly this scene fits the Lynch ethos. Language that is precise and specific yet tells us nothing. Characters whose bizarre relationship is both crystal clear in shape, yet totally foggy in detail. Or is it vice versa? Mysteries, layers of mysteries, that both the storyteller and characters in the scene are withholding from us and one another. And then from later in that piece, I wrote, Mark Frost loves to find things out, digging deeper to retrieve buried treasures, while David Lynch prefers to hover on the periphery, wanting to find out but never quite getting there, imagining what we will never see or hear. Twin Peaks exists in the tensions between those two modes. So that's it for the part 12 coverage. And now for part 13... Here is the opening minute. I'm going to play the audio and then describe what we see to get us ready for tomorrow.
insurance agencies. Oh, my God, Battery Bud, you're the man. <laughs> Looks like you boys made quite a night of it. <laughs> Dougie, you might want to call your wife. Wife? fade up on a low-angle shot of the brown statue in the Lucky 7 Plaza in Las Vegas. We've seen it before. The hatted figure holding his pistol aloft, a proud lawman pose, is now a familiar reminder of where we are, and perhaps a symbolic avatar for Cooper Dougie restoring order, however passively, to the business on which this man sets his sights. The glass Lucky 7 office building, 10 stories high, fills the right side of the frame. On the left side, behind the statue, which we see full figure, glimpsing the top of its foundation as well, is a tall, other white building with another concrete one, perhaps a parking garage, in front of it, and a roughly triangular shape covered with white tarp and dotted with three red balloons. A bare tree stands in the right corner of the frame, where we can glimpse the tops of palms closer to the office building. The shot holds for about two seconds after the fade finishes, and then we cut inside that building. A wide shot of the tall ceilinged reflective floored hall space of Lucky 7, cavernous in scale but welcoming with its shiny surfaces and occasionally bright colored ornamentation. The primary yellow gleam of the plant holding centerpiece in the middle of the floor serves as our foreground. Four figures are huddled behind lowered but open blinds in one of the big offices, perhaps the conference room, and two other figures sit near the opposite wall facing that office door, a man in a bright blue chair and a woman in a bright red chair. Both are gazing at a conga line of revelers, who are already emerging as the shop begins. A gift rack box held just beyond the corner announces their arrival. A conservatively dressed man and woman enter the frame from screen left. She carries what appears to be a folded newspaper, perhaps a book, a medium-sized handbag hangs from her left shoulder, and he grips a morning coffee. Simultaneously, six figures round that corner near the center of the frame. Three men in dark suits alternating with three women in bright pink chiffron dresses, wearing tiaras and floofy pink feathers in their hair. The women all carry the aforementioned presents, while the men's hands are more free to flail and dangle. They are dancing, having a great time, and we quickly recognize them as Rodney Mitchum, Candy, Bradley Mitchum, Sandy, Agent Cooper, known here as Dougie Jones, and Sandy in the caboose, or Mandy, rather, in the caboose. Each dancer's hand rests loosely on the person in front of them. Glimpsed in a medium-wide shot from outside his office through open blinds, Anthony Sinclair turns his head around to see what's going on. He is seated in a black rolling chair at a wooden desk, with the usual ornamentation, desktop computer, metal lamp, ornamental pen, black landline phone, and a black mat on which his keyboard and some papers rest. The walls and floor are tan, reddish-orange chairs and black lamp appear in an enclave created near the back of the frame by an indentation in the wall. We see the bottom of a red and yellow, fairly abstract painting above the chairs and a framed piece of text with a lucky seven insignia on the wall behind Anthony. The decor overall is spare and unflashy, despite that dash of color in the back, all the more to contrast with whatever noise is disrupting the morning routine. Brow curiously furrowed, Anthony stands up and approaches the glass wall slash window to contemplate whatever he views to his right. This reveals that the text frame behind him is one of two framed phototext combos, maybe advertisements. Dipping his head down to get a better view, we switch to his perspective and see that the six revelers were indeed passing the conference room. The four figures previously huddled inside now stare out at the conga line as it passes. The man and woman that were arriving have stopped their trot to stare as well, and four other workers gathered around the conference table below a blocky abstract work are also paying attention. On the left side of the frame, broken up by the blurred lines of Anthony's blind, we can see the edge of the bright yellow plant holder and a bright turquoise one, 
near a matching chair, while a green one matches the plants. Color is emerging as these figures enter the frame. The six dancers move right to left in wide shot, with Rodney fully embracing his role as leader of the line, shifting his body sideways as he rolls his arms and throws his hands in the air. They're getting closer now, and we can see the joy on their faces. Return to the medium reverse shot of Anthony, whose eyes bug out and mouth drops when he realizes what he's seeing. His shoulders sag and his entire body drops about a foot. His eyes and mouth can't get any wider, but they're trying, before we cut back again for a pan as the six dancers fill the frame and we follow them. Now we see a higher red portion of the planter rising above the turquoise perimeter behind them. They're kicking up their legs, waving their arms, and grinning ear to ear. Anthony looks worriedly from side to side and then does a desperate little twirl as if trying to figure out where he can run to, and then he flees and crouches behind his desk and computer, too scared of the implications to keep looking at this delightful scene. In the next shot, we're out in the broad hall space again, glimpsing a common area on the far right where bemused employees look over their shoulders while the revelers enter the large office of Bushnell Mullins, filled with oak walls lined not too overwhelmingly by books of files. Bushnell himself appears just in view by his desk, jutting out from behind a corner that closes off the left side of the frame. Now 40 seconds into the scene, we cut to a medium shot of Bushnell at his desk. The large framed bright yellow and red boxing poster of himself is visible behind him. His younger figure is glimpsed only from the torso down. Wearing a light blue shirt and green and yellowish brown striped tie behind his black jacket, a bit less severe than others like Anthony, Bushnell smiles and gently claps. Several athletic trophies appear on a stand behind him, while his desk is filled with the usual accoutrements, mostly unnoteworthy except for a little dog figurine behind his nameplate and some kind of ornament shaped like a dice. Reverse medium shot, the line passes through his open door, stepping in front of several chairs that were placed around a small coffee table in front of a TV with a blue background Lucky 7 logo on the screen. Rodney and Candy are already inside the room when the shot begins, with Bradley, Sandy, and Cooper passing through, and Candy almost, or rather Mandy, almost there, before we cut back to the shot of Bushnell. Now with the other characters passing in front of of the camera, their out-of-focus elements foregrounding him and blocking him at times as he smiles and rests his hand by his side. Reverse shot, looking over the desk at the six figures lined up to face the off-screen Bushnell. Bradley's hands extend and his pointer fingers excitingly shake in Bushnell's direction as he calls him the man. Cut back to Bushnell gesturing with open palms at his cheerful greeters, then back to the -the over-the-desk shot, now with the edge of Bushnell's arm on the right side, as Candy approaches to place one of the widest of the three silver gift boxes on the desktop. Sandy quickly places a similarly sized box next to Candy's, before walking away, and Mandy places a small, flat box next to the other two, and then turns around too. Candy stays behind to carefully straighten out the boxes and perfect the display. She even bobs up and down with fingers extended as if attempting to figure something out. While Bradley coughs, Rodney makes a kissing praise motion with his hands and his face, and Sandy and Mandy cluster around Cooper, and our minute comes to an end. And that is it for now for this episode and this week of episodes, but of course we're already into part 13, so see you tomorrow as we kick off a full week of coverage with the same format on part 13 of Twin Peaks The Return. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and to support this work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. 